Open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the last verse of Romans chapter 4. Just to put our study in its theological framework to prepare our hearts for the ministry of the Word. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we come this morning and we consider the teaching of your word, the glorious truth of a crucified Messiah that's raised by your power, one that comes forth from the grave, spoiling Satan of his power, spoiling death of its authority, and now seated at your right hand, ever living to make intercession in prayer for those for whom he made intercession by his blood upon the cross. We pray that he would be hallowed in our midst in this hour. The things that are familiar would become fresh, things that have perhaps been not known before. You would write these things upon our hearts again. And those that are strangers to grace, that they might experience resurrection power this morning, that Jesus would see the travail of his soul again and be satisfied that those for whom he has died are now being brought to faith And those that are being brought to faith, even now throughout the world, are being brought to glory. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Two truths that I want to bring forward today that are going to lie in the background of the preaching of the Word is this. And the first is that hope is indispensable to living the Christian life. And secondly, the resurrection of Christ is indispensable to Christian hope. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 beginning at verse 1, and I will be reading through verse 23. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which you also stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. 
Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive." but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Now, brethren, I wish to approach this passage with just two headings by way of exposition and then a few words of concluding application. The writer to the Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, if you are a Christian, you live by faith, and the Christian life is lived by faith in unseen realities. You see, we believe what we cannot see because we embrace the Word of God as true and reliable. We believe trustworthy testimony that Jesus was conceived of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, and that he died a sin-atoning death. And we believe that he was raised from the dead, just as the Bible teaches. We believe things we cannot see, because we believe him who cannot lie. You remember Jesus' gentle reproof to a disciple, a doubting Disciple who had to see in order to believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. You know the passage, John 20 and verse 29. Jesus said to him, that is to Thomas, Because you have seen me, you have believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You see, the life of faith is blessed because 
it takes God at His word. Christians for the last 2,000 years have believed in a Jesus that they've never seen with their own eyes, but have beheld with the eye of faith. We believe because the Bible tells us so. John 20, verses 30 and 31. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Brethren, we live the Christian life with our eyes fixed upon an unseen Christ, with our eyes looking toward unseen eternal realities. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. When God saves us and He opens our eyes to see the kingdom of God, He gives us the capacity with the eyes of faith to see things that are unseen. Now, I've said that hope is indispensable to living the Christian life, and the resurrection of Christ is indispensable to hope. We walk by faith, we live by hope. Hope is akin to faith. We might think of faith and hope this way. Faith is hope's eyes. It sees the unseen. Hope is faith's hands. It expects to lay hold of what is seen with the eye of faith. And hope excites expectation and perseverance. As Paul elsewhere says, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly wait for it. And so he writes, Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and, pro and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. The Holy Spirit energizes a life of hope. We believe that we will see and we will, with our hands, handle the things that we receive by faith. You see, the hope of a Christian is never in vain because it is founded upon the promises of a God who cannot lie. And bless God for the grace of hope which He plants in our hearts in the new birth. Hope is born when we're born again. So Peter says, 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
That hope lives within us because we've been born anew by the grace of God. We are to live a life of faith and a life of hope. Our hope is a living hope because it is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me read further into 1 Peter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is a substantial hope because it rests upon a resurrected Savior, you see. Indeed, it is through belief in the resurrected Christ that our faith and hope are in God, Peter writes again. This time, verse 21 of 1 Peter 1. Who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So with that introduction... I want us to begin to consider our study this morning with two points. First of all, we're going to consider the dangerous heresy of denying the resurrection. The dangerous heresy of denying the resurrection. Well, if we had time to read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and other places in the New Testament we would find that false teachers had crept into the churches. It crept into the Corinthian church. And one of their false doctrines was they denied the resurrection of the dead. And this denial upset the faith and undermined the hope of many in the church. Look at verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead. For Paul, denying the resurrection of the dead logically involves denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look at verses 13 and 16. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And he says it again. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And the point is that if Christ hasn't been raised, we have no hope. So notice first the logical or the logic evident in Paul's doctrine of the resurrection. The promise of the future resurrection is validated by Jesus' historical bodily resurrection from the grave. We know that that is coming because of what Jesus did coming forth from the grave. You see, Christ's resurrection is the necessary consequence of the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead. You see, you can't deny the one without also denying the other. The resurrection of Christ is grounded in and founded upon the doctrine of the resurrection. It was taught many places in the Old Testament. They should have been expecting it, and many of them did. Job believed it. David taught it. Daniel makes it plain. Notice, second, that Jesus' resurrection exposes the error of those who deny the future resurrection of the dead. And it debunks the contention of those, maybe of the false teachers in Corinth, who would restrict the resurrection of the dead 
to those who were raised when Jesus was raised from the dead. We read about this in the 27th chapter of Matthew, who are only later on to die. Indeed, Paul later in 1 Corinthians is at pains to describe the glorious, deathless body of Christians who will, the, 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 the body that they will have when they come forth from the grave on resurrection day, a body like Christ's own glorious body. We will not be raised from the dead only to die again. We'll be raised from the dead to live in glorious bodies forever, age unto age without end. Notice third that denial of the doctrine of the resurrection leads to a wicked life. You see, brethren, doctrines have consequences and false doctrines have unholy consequences. Notice the evil impact which denying the doctrine of the resurrection had among some of the members of the Ephesian church. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Paul writes to Timothy, Indeed, some of the last words penned by the Apostle Paul. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. What's gangrene? That's the dying of the flesh of the body. And among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. He even names them. Men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place. And thus they upset the faith of some. The resurrection of Christ is indispensable to the hope of a Christian. The heretical doctrine of the resurrection taught by Hymenaeus and Philetus led to wicked living. Teaching that the resurrection had already taken place unleashed a plague of immorality that spread like gangrene in the body. And we're reminded again, are we not, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump if it is not removed? False doctrine and immoral behavior like noxious weeds in a garden quickly take over and choke out the life of a church. Denial of the resurrection destroys gospel faith and is, as we will see, it undermines gospel hope. Paul begins his treatise on the resurrection by defending this doctrine as a cornerstone of the Christian gospel. We see this in verses 3 and 4. And without the resurrection, there is no good news. And a denial of the resurrection utterly destroys the Christian message of hope to be given to a hopeless world. What the, res what, what the, what the world needs is not conservative legislation. What the world needs is Christ. They need a resurrected Christ. We can't legislate hope. That is a gift of grace. Let me say it again. Doctrines have consequences. And false doctrines have harmful consequences. And we've seen that a denial of the doctrine of the resurrection involves a denial of Christ's resurrection. What does Paul say? If there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. 
But there's, there's more here. False doctrines are never alone. They have tentacles which go outward and impact other doctrines. Doctrine of the, or denial of the resurrection like a bite from an infected tick carries with it other noxious maladies that infect other doctrines. First of all, if there's no resurrection, both gospel preaching and gospel believing are in vain. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is in vain. We're involved in a charade here. You're believing in something that's not true. You see, both preaching and believing are vain without the resurrection. There is no message of hope to those dead in sin without a living Savior. You see, a full gospel demands an empty tomb. Second, preachers are wicked deceivers if the doctrine of the resurrection is not true. And without verification. There were eyewitnesses. Paul says that he, he appeared to more than 500 at one time, and many of them were still alive. You could go and you could interview them. We don't have them today. They're not alive, but their testimony is embalmed in Scripture. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses, Paul says. False witnesses of God because we witnessed against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. Thirdly, if there's no resurrection, our faith is futile, it's vain, it's worthless, it's useless. If Jesus has not been raised, if there is no resurrection... Believers are still dead in trespasses and sins, and without the resurrection of Christ, there is no justification by faith. Verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. You see, without the resurrection of Christ... There can be no pardon, there can be no peace, there can be no perseverance. Faith saves only as it lays hold of a living, life-giving Savior. Romans 5, verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. We exult in the hope. We see it in the future with the eye of hope. We haven't laid hold of it with a hand of sense yet, but it's waiting there for us, you see. Fourth, if there's no resurrection, then all believers who have died have perished in their sins. Without the resurrection, there's no eternal life, no glory for those who die in Jesus Christ. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Doctrines have consequences, you see. Brethren, what more cruel deception could be hatched from hell than a message that promised eternal life to believers for them only to die in their sins and perish in hell forever. There's no hope there. That's a cruel deception. 
if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Fifthly, if there is no resurrection, there is no hope, but only pity for living Christians. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. That's the practical, logical conclusion. Without the resurrection, Christians would be the most miserable dupes in all of history. This word translated pitied is only used in one other place in the New Testament, and it's translated miserable in Revelation 3 and verse 17. Poor and wretched, miserable, blind and naked. That's what you are if you're not a true Christian. And if Christianity, the doctrine of the resurrection, is a lie, you are, of all men, most miserable. You see, Paul reasons this way. If death ends our life and extinguishes our hope, we are in a worse state than atheists and the ungodly who live to feed their lusts and expect death to end their existence. No, we believe that there's life to come, do we not? So why should we trust in Christ and mortify our sin and endure persecution if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead? Death ends it all. In the mind of resurrection deniers. You see, if he wasn't raised, we won't be raised and we might as well serve our lusts as they do. Because we're never going to have to pay the piper. We're never going to stand before God and give an account of our lives, of the deeds that are done in the body. You see, Paul can conceive of no more miserable person than one who trusts in a dead Christ. You see, only a risen Lord can save spiritually dead sinners. Only He can raise them from the grave. And what he's saying here is that resurrection hope empowers godly living. Without Christ's resurrection, we are then utterly hopeless. Sixthly, if there is no resurrection, there's no motivation then to live a righteous life. Hope of the resurrection, you see, animates Christian perseverance in gospel holiness. Without resurrection hope, we might as well just give in to our carnal lusts and live like the rest of this wicked world. This is how Paul, how Paul reasons. Look at verses 32 and 33. See, he had the gospel hope when he went into the arena. He believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead because he believed in the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. He says, if from human, merely human motives, I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, if I thought I could somehow save my life and kill those beasts, no, there was something that animated me. He says, if from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what does it profit me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Finally, if there's no resurrection, there's no reason to persevere in the face of persecution. 
for following Christ and seeking to extend his kingdom. That's just a fool's errand that they're on. It's a waste of time. It's worse than a waste of time. It's not going to accomplish anything. So what enabled the Apostle Paul to face and overcome such dangers as we read about in 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Paul writes, In far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews thirty-nine lashes, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, and he has another one coming. A night and a day I've spent in the deep, on frequent journeyings, in dangers from river, rivers, in dangers from robbers, in dangers from my countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, in labor and hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Paul says the tr troubles and trials of this life, both from enemies and from my work that I'm doing, it's pulling me every which direction. But how can I remain faithful? I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Christ has been raised. I will be raised. What grace animated the faithful apostles? What enabled them to persevere when suffering all manner of tribulation and suffering in advancing the cause of Christ? Paul tells us in the 8th chapter of Romans. Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 23, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What is it? The redemption of our bodies. Talking about the resurrection here. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one hope for also hope for what he sees? He doesn't. It's in his hand. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. How is it that our persecuted brethren around the world continue to follow Christ faithfully? What about these that are on the list to become martyrs? They don't know maybe where their next meal is coming from. They don't know if the, if the sun is going to rise on them tomorrow in this life. They're not of all men most miserable. They are of all men most hopeful. Because they know if God brings their life to an end, when they close their eyes to this life, they're going to open their eyes to see Jesus Christ above the clouds. What was Paul's counsel and exhortation to Timothy before laying down his own life for Christ? Again, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. What's his exhortation and counsel to Timothy? Because he always encouraged men to follow him as he followed Christ. Now he's encouraging Timothy specifically, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. 
descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. It is a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. You see, Christian faithfulness is energized by hope in a resurrected Christ. Therefore, notice secondly, and more briefly, the emphatic assurance of the resurrection. Having seen the dangerous heresy of denying the resurrection, more briefly, the emphatic assurance of the resurrection. Verse 20. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. He has been raised. And in the language in which this was written, this was a perfect passive indicative verb. He has been raised. He stands raised. He'll continue to be raised forever. So notice, first of all, we'll look at two things. The fact of the resurrection. Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ's resurrection has been regarded as the best attested fact in human history. In fact, those that have sought to find that the resurrection is not true have been convinced. I think of one man, his name is Frank Morris, and that's a pseudonym, that's not his real name, but he, he set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And guess what? He believed it. It was absolutely true. It is attested to by historical fact in his book, entitled, Who Moved the Stone? When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, hundreds of eyewitnesses could be called upon to give their testimony to his resurrection. You see, our hope of the resurrection of Christ rests upon a verifiable historical reality. Paul states Christ's resurrection with emphatic certainty, but now... And this but now, it's not a reference to time, but it's Paul's way of introducing important statements and of driving home powerful conclusions. And I mentioned but a couple of these in the book of Romans. Romans 3 and verse 21. After arraigning the whole world as guilty before God, he says in Romans 3 and verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. And verse uh, six, chapter 6 and verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. So what is the powerful conclusion that Paul is driving home with his but now? Well, simply this. Our preaching of Christ, your faith in Christ, the truth of the gospel of Christ, encouragement to endure hardship in suffering for the cause of Christ, motivation to live a holy life to glorify Christ, your own resurrection in Christ, the heavenly home of those who have died in Christ. Brethren, it is not 
Uncertain, it is not vain. It's far otherwise. It's fact. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. Indeed, Christian faith and hope is grounded in Christ's empty tomb. Secondly, consider the pictorial illustration and promise of the resurrection. And it is this, Christ's resurrection illustrates and secures the resurrection of all Christians. Paul been pointing toward this all along. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Paul pictures Christ's resurrection as first fruits. We're not in agrarian culture here in the Twin Cities. If you were out to the west of us, you'd understand first fruits. But you see, by this imagery of first fruits, Paul is teaching us two things about Christ's resurrection. First of all, he teaches that like first fruits that promise a full later harvest, Jesus' resurrection promises a full harvest of all his people from the grave. Paul has in mind the old covenant law requiring Israel's offering of its first fruits to God. Leviticus 23.10, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land which I am going to give you and reap its harvest, then you shall bring in the sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. You see, Jesus is the firstfruits of the full ingathering. And second, firstfruits not only promise a full harvest, they promise a like harvest. That is, we will be raised in the likeness of our resurrected Lord. This is Paul's argument later in 1 Corinthians. It's suggested here. Christians like Jesus before them will be raised in immutable glory and splendor. We will have a body like unto His. Paul states this wonderful truth succinctly in other places. Romans 6 and verse 5, For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Philippians 3.21, Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to Himself. And might I just say, by way of an aside, it's that same resurrection power which will raise our bodies from the grave that is, gives us enablement now to live the Christian life. We're not waiting for a power then to be released. The first fruits of that power are in us even now. We've been brought from sin to grace, and grace will bring us ultimately to glory. And glory is in us even begun. When will the full harvest come, and what will be its signal? Well, Paul tells us here. Those who are Christ at His coming. And he speaks of it later, 
in 1 Corinthians, verses 51 through 55. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Well, Jesus endured the sting of death so that we don't have to endure it. He's come forth from the grave with a glorified body in prospect and prophecy of the day in which we shall come forth from the grave. We were reminded last Lord's Day that the full harvest will be gathered when Christ returns. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Well, that brings us to a few words of concluding application this morning. First of all, I would bring a warning and an invitation to those that don't have this resurrection hope, those that are not Christians. Now, we know that Paul's primary audience here was Christians. He's writing to the church in Corinth, but he even says in this book of Corinthians that not all of you have faith. I say this to your shame. So let me offer a word of warning to you. You see, only Christians have the blessed hope of this coming glorious resurrection. And because you are without saving faith in Christ, you are without resurrection hope at this point. Any hope you may entertain of a happy life after death, however you conceive of it, I must tell you honestly, it's an empty delusion. What does the Bible say? We could look at other places. Job 8, verses 13 and 14. So are the paths of all who forget God. And the hope of the godless will perish. It will die with him, with her. Whose confidence, this is their hope, whose confidence is fragile and whose trust is a spider web. They're going to die and hold on to a spider web? Their hope is a spider web. Make no mistake, you will be raised from the dead, but not in glory, but in horror and shame. Daniel 12 and verse 2. You will be raised in disgrace and everlasting contempt. That's why Paul speaks to unconverted people about the resurrection. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. Speaking of God, 
Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, oh, in his mercy, he hasn't sent us to hell as we've deserved. God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Those who deny the resurrection today, they won't deny it then. So I plead with you, cast off all hope of saving yourself. Plead with God to show you mercy in Christ. Turn from your sin. Entrust your never dying soul to the resurrected Lord Jesus to save you. Say, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Lord, don't give me justice. I need your mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. Give me what I don't deserve. You sent Jesus to die. He came into this world to save sinners. Lord, I see that I'm a sinner. Give me faith to lay hold of Jesus Christ. Give me a new heart to believe upon Him. Give me eyes to see the kingdom of God. And if you plead with that kind of holy desperation, casting all of your hope in acceptance with Jesus Christ, if you do that, he will hear you. John 5 and verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus said, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Cross the bridge of no return from death to life. But I speak to Christians here. Three points of practical conclusion. First of all, because Christ has been raised from the dead, live continually in hope. You've been born again to a living hope. Continue to hope in the certainties flowing from a resurrected Christ. In the authority of His Word, in the fulfillment of His promises, in the power of His Gospel, in the unshakable ground of your faith, in the certain forgiveness of your sins, in the blessed hope of His return to raise the dead and transform the living. Hope in these things, because they're spoken by a God who cannot lie. And they've been proven to be true because God raised Jesus from the dead. Let me encourage you to keep your hope alive by looking to a resurrected Christ. No matter how severe a trial God may call upon you to face in this life, be it affliction of one kind or another, persecution for your faith in Jesus Christ, providential destitution, turn your faith heavenward. And gaze afresh upon your resurrected Lord, because when you do, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Jesus pointed his dejected disciples on the road to Emmaus to himself 
as their resurrected Lord. Their heads were hanging down and they were going about kicking rocks. They thought that their their hope was buried in a tomb. But the very one that they had at that point perhaps lost hope in, we had thought that that he would be the one. Uh, But he encouraged them. He opened their eyes to see who he really was. Imagine that Bible study that Jesus had with those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. When Jesus would have ransacked the Bible from Genesis all the way through Malachi, speaking truths that would be found in the New Testament as they reflected truths from the Old Testament, their eyes probably got like saucers. And they, they later said that their hearts were warmed when he spoke to us about these things. That he must come in humiliation, but he must leave in glory. Brethren, when we're dejected, we need to look up and see with the eyes of faith a resurrected, ascended Christ seated at the right hand of majesty on high. And he who interceded for us on the cross is interceding interceding for us even now at the Father's right hand. Secondly, because Christ has been raised from the dead, abound in your Christian duties knowing that your service for Christ is not in vain. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. This is the capstone of Paul's argument for the resurrection Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. How so, Paul? With what mentality? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord, in the resurrected Christ. You're not wasting your time. You're not on a fool's errand. You're not of all men most to be pitied. Indeed, if unconverted people knew what the hope that you have, you would be, of all men, most to be admired. Give me that hope. I want it for myself. I see how it gets you through your trials. I have not this hope. I have a hangnail. And I feel like the end has come. And I see you with your toes upon the doorstep of eternity with a smile on your face, quickness in in, in your step, looking forward to the time in which you shall close your eyes to this life and open them to see Jesus Christ in the life to come. Your labors are not in vain because Jesus is in glory. The deeper your faith in Jesus' resurrection, the more zealous and active and industrious you will be in your Christian service. Know that such labors will not prove vain in the Lord. Parents, in your raising of your children, look to Christ. Look to the resurrected Christ. He'll give you help from above. He'll give you encouragement that your labors are not in vain in the Lord. As you work in a difficult job situation, Do as you do for the glory of Christ, Him enabling you. As you witness to 
lost family members and friends and workmates. Do so with hope in the resurrected Christ. He sent a word that slew the enmity in your heart toward Him. He's put you on the road to heaven. Speak with hope. Indeed, the hope that you have in Christ. That's the reason. That's why you carry on. Finally, because Christ has been raised from the dead, be hopeful about the blessed condition of those who die in the Lord. Beloved brethren who are absent from the body are present with the Lord. And to be with them is, is far more to be desired than to be here. That's what you're looking forward to. That's what you're longing for. This is just a short pilgrimage. It's going to open to a glorious, unending heaven with Jesus Christ and with the saints and the angels. Remember Pastor Randy's word from last Lord's Day. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And he who has gone there will receive us to himself. I close with the words of Revelation 21 and verse 4. What are we waiting for? What's awaiting us? He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall no longer be any death. There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. For the first things have passed away, passed away forever. You see, hope is indispensable to living the Christian life. And the resurrection of Christ is indispensable to your hope, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how can we stammer these glorious things? What wonderful truths are contained in your word and in this passage. Oh, we pray that the wonder of those things would never be lost upon us. You'd cause it to be continually fresh, that you would strengthen our hope. You would extend the reach of our hope, as it were, for our fingers to grasp those things by faith, which we one day will have grasped in our own hands. So, Lord, begin that good work that you've begun in us until the day in which you shall return or to call us home, Fix that we might fix our eyes upon Jesus the author and finisher of our faith. For we pray these things in his name. Amen.